This is the Game Theory Podcast, Episode 1, Introductions, with Brian Fife, Jim Fingal, and Tom Westberg. So what we're doing here is this is the introduction. What I did is put together some questions that we're going to talk about. The questions were, list five games that you love, a game that you wish you loved but that you can't or you won't, your most memorable gaming experience or your best gaming experience. What were the other questions? What is your biggest pet peeve with game design today? Mm-hmm. The implication being that if only people knew to avoid it, it wouldn't be all that hard to, but they just keep doing it. Or maybe it's a deliberate choice that just you don't agree with. <laughs> yeah, it could be that, too. Your biggest wish for games, which either no one is thought to do or is difficult to pull off. Cool. And the other question was just, what are you playing now? Hi, this is Aaron. Due to some technical difficulties, a small portion of the recording was lost at this point. We sincerely apologize. We will be rejoining the action just as Jim has started discussing his first pick, Planescape Torment. Thank you. Uh, It was very funny, and it it had humor that was very witty and not bodily humor, (laughs) the sort of humor that you more often find yourself interacting with in games like Duke Nukem. Planescape Torment, I would say Fallout 1 and 2, I won't count those as 2, but the D, I think similar to to Planescape, I really like the, the immersive world and, and just like how much there was to explore of it and, and also how it was a sort of early game in the, the post-apocalyptic genre of things and, I've, and it sort of did everything right the first time. You don't really have to explain why you put Fallout on the list, right? No. Mirror's Edge. Huh. Uh, I really like Mirror's Edge. Uh, First-person non-shooter. You play basically like a courier running around cityscape and basically a parkour game where you're jumping and, and ducking and, and rolling and, and bouncing off of things. It was just a blast to, to play, visually striking. It was really nice to, to play a game that was that exhilarating that wasn't primarily focused on combat and shooting people. In fact, as someone who could not carry a gun, you could, you could sometimes pick up guns and, and shoot people, but you could never like carry one around. You are always at a disadvantage if you actually like tried to fight people. That, that just wasn't the point, right? Um, yeah. That was a game that, that was big on flow. Yeah. Shadow of the Colossus. PlayStation, I think, 2 game. It also stands out amongst other games in a similar genre. It's third person, you're wandering around a big world, and it's like the anti-grind game, because in the entire game, I think they're, they're like... Everything is a boss fight, and there are these 12 gigantic, beautiful guardian bosses. It's like a single battle, but each battle is is a puzzle. And another thing, it, a good thing it does is it just nails the the mood of of being in this. You're you have to kill these like gigantic beasts because it's like the way to awaken your your fall in love. But there's an extreme melancholy every time you actually succeed <laughs> because there's a sense that you're destroying something beautiful. Did you, uh, did you get the HD remake for PS3? 
I did. I haven't I haven't played that yet. I started playing Ico, which I had never played before. And as I sometimes do in in games like that, I got stuck and just didn't know where I was supposed to go. So I I stopped playing and I haven't I haven't played the other side of it yet. Yeah, that was my experience with Ico as well. Ico seemed really nice in a in a similar way. I'm looking forward to the maker of those games has a new game that I think is coming out either end of this year or end of next year. That's like somewhere in between the games in which you're like a young child, like wandering around a scary castle and you, and there's this like gigantic beast, but it happens to be your gigantic beast friend. (laughs) So interested to see what that one's like. But, but the last game on my list that I really enjoyed playing was Red Faction, (laughs) which I I don't know how if that if that is up in anyone's top X list, but I ex- really enjoyed blowing things up in that game, and you can blow anything up. <laughs> is that the one where you, yeah you were the Mars mining colony, and basically all the walls were deformable, or most of the walls were deformable? You basically play a gorilla on Mars. You you don't naturally start out, but you eventually become part of this resistance that's fighting against some sort of evil corporation that doesn't really care about people's lives. There, there's a, a variety of different like sorts of missions that, that you do, whether or not you're like intercepting someone or like an assassination mission. Uh, but the funnest was always demolition missions because as, as Brian said, everything in the game world is destructible and you get points for it. <laughs> I guess you being a terrorist, that's also part of the point, right? It's just to, to wreck stuff. Well, yeah, and similar to in in Homefront, the idea of being an insurgent and a terrorist in a game that has come out in the last five years, there's also something interesting about that. To be clear, most of the games that you listed are not super new. I think Mirror's Edge is the most recent one, right? Yeah, yeah. I have to look up when Red Faction came out. In May of 2001. Okay. Tom, what did you come up with for your list? So I went back a bit further, and I'm also, because I go back further, started out in coin-op. So it won't surprise you much that Robotron 2084 remains one of my favorite games, definitely a game I loved. I know that you feel constrained because you couldn't pick pinball. You didn't actually specify, and I, <laughs> I, and I considered. But aside from some fun, funny pinball games, it's actually difficult to say, well, this table really stands out. I can remember actually particular machines that I've enjoyed, but I I didn't actually think I could come up with love out of that. Whereas Robotron is definitely a just a plain, pure game experience that I would get to playing 40-minute games and and get into a a sort of zen of just seeing smears of color on the screen. You 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 have a deep relationship with that game yes yes you you talk about that game the way i don't even know like the little folds and nuances not only because you have a lot of understanding what's going under the covers but just because you clocked a lot of time a lot of time we we had one of these when i was working on a uh an integrated circuit and our tools were such (laughs) that when you wanted to start a simulation of the chip, it would take 40 minutes from hitting return before you would get a command line prompt back. And that just screams for going off and playing a game. 
And of course, you, if you can fill it up with that time, that, that's just excellent. So anyway, Robotron is, uh, for me, sort of a pure gaming experience. It's also, I really like the idea of those days, which is to some extent coming, able to come back now, of just having a, an actual full game done by just a couple of people. In this case, Eugene Jarvis, Larry DeMar. Now tools have gotten better uh, so that individuals can do it, although games are so expressive in terms of sound and music and art that it's much harder for just a pure programmer to do that today than it was in 1982. At that time, a programmer with with decent aesthetic could be an artist as well. And today it's less likely, even though developer has a lot more leverage, right, than they did. Yes. And in fact, the pixels, the resolution was so poor and the number of colors you got was so low and the amount of ROM you got was so little that most real artists would just be frustrated by being pulled into to the genre. Then more recently, and this feels sort of like conventional wisdom, but I, 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 don't, I couldn't leave out World of Warcraft and a lot of time there, even though I'm horrified at the amount of time I spent, I really enjoyed it. You didn't really stop playing until... I sent that note to you about summing all of the time you played on all your different characters, right? That was pretty horrifying. <laughs> uh, I, I, Isn't there a command that does that? It, only character by character. So <laughs> you have to log into every server you've ever been on and log in as every character and type slash played. But nothing will show you all the time you've spent on World of Warcraft, period. And when you do, it's it's not a good time. Going back to the, I guess, 90s, Toe Jam and Earl on Sega Genesis, which was fun platform game that had a, a decent sense of humor and was somewhat randomized. And I just enjoyed the, their, their bizarre worldview. My brother-in-law, who's not a gamer at all, he loves that game. I could believe it. There may be some level of it, though, that is... Only decent as nostalgia. Video game technology has moved beyond. You can see Robotron gameplay still showing up in Geometry Wars and, and so forth. Well, it had a renaissance. I mean, the, that was one of the first major comebacks of, of that game style, Geometry Wars, right? Yes. Uh, twin stick driving is more natural in some ways than, than buttons on a tablet or a glass screen, right? Maybe. Uh, having played, what is it, Inferno on iPad, I'm often frustrated by Twin Stick. The true way of telling that you've just completely gotten lost into a Robotron game is to discover you're almost trying to pull the machine over on yourself by pulling down, or that you have essentially joystick blisters and, and really sore <laughs> arms from jerking the joysticks in various directions. Of course, they're digital and none of that mattered, but it feels like a, an actual physical motion to, to try to get things to just go a little bit faster in that direction. You can't do that when you're just smearing your thumbs around. And using an Xbox or a PS3 controller is actually a, a reasonable experience, and that's where Geometry Wars really brought it back. Then I'll, I'll go with my Valve entry, which would be Portal which they did their uh, integrated story yet again and done in an interesting, subtle, passive-aggressive way. 
intertwined with the gameplay, and the gameplay was plenty of interesting puzzle and exploration, along with what's good for me, a only moderate amount of flexes required, so that I could eventually storm my way through some of the more difficult levels that required bouncing from place to place to place, where otherwise, in most cases for platform games, my patience wears thin and I, I give them up. And I'll wager this is the closest to first-person shooter we're going to get on your list. Gee, it does look that way. <laughs> it seemed like one of the the interesting things about Portal with reflexes is that you could almost tell that if you were trying to do something that involved too much skill, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. They had a couple of levels that did that definitely required you you build up the skill, but it, that's that was the exception rather than the rule. Well, and, and Tom, you you played through some of the levels with the commentary on. Jim, did you ever do that? I think I've played every Valve game with the the commentary on because I just, I love that commentary. <laughs> well, that's it's kind of like a, a master class in level design as well, right? They they talk a lot about trying to get people to look up, and, and I've, I think about that every time I play a game now. <laughs> the idea that it is like not at all natural for people in a third-person shooter to, to crane their neck up to look at the beautiful scenery that that your, your animator spent hundreds of hours working on, so you have to give them some sort of cue to, uh, to do that or to solve a puzzle by looking at the ceiling. <laughs> I also enjoyed listening to the, to the way they would watch focus group players playing the game who would discover incredibly difficult ways to get through some of the levels that they'd never thought possible. And sometimes they, they chose to actually leave those in and make those the actual answer. And then my last goes back to, to CoinUp. To some extent, I don't know if this is just because I like it for for art's sake, which would be Tempest, the color vector game, which was Space Invaders wrapped on a 3D tube. I'm really glad that you got a vector game in there because there's something more timeless about those games, I think, in in my experience, than the old pixel-driven uh, arcade games. They don't show their age in ways that, say, Robotron or Togemino would. You, you don't, you don't see the blocky size pixels and so forth. They're, they're just pure strokes of color. I, you could even say Battlezone with its dark green and black. The, the main thing I'd say about Battlezone that would not put it up to a game I love is that it essentially didn't have any significant depth, even in terms of adding more enemies or, or changing shapes of anything. There were essentially the saucers, a couple of tanks. It they couldn't render more than one or one or two tanks on the screen at once. And so the only thing they could do was make things come at you faster and faster, but until you until you die. And that didn't feel like it was great game design. There was no real yeah, evolution in the gameplay that was rewarding. Cool. Hey, do you guys know that we, we got some sponsorship for this thing? <laughs> no. Yeah, no, no, we did. I'm going to do one of those right now. The first sponsor is Aperture Labs, and, and they wanted us to talk about uh, their weighted companion cube product. I think it's something we're all familiar with. Now, Tom, you incinerated yours, right? 
sadly, uh, I, but, uh, <laughs> but we've got we've got one around here, and we use it all the time. Uh, I, I jumped in myself one at uh, one time to, <laughs> just to try to avoid it. <laughs> uh, now, Jim, Jim, you use yours to to keep an eye on the dogs at home. Is that right? I do, yeah. It has it's one of those like wireless security camera things, so it both projects to the internet while allowing itself to to be shook around and tossed in, into the air by the pups. Zoe has the same kind of catnip-like response to it, so so she loves ours and plays around with it all the time. I, I don't really think we need to go too in depth about the weighted companion cube because if you're listening to this, you're probably very familiar with that product already. But we want to thank the the people at Aperture Labs for. Uh, for, for being very generous and sponsoring us, and to check it out. And see if they could stop destroying the world. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. you got to cut that out. Did you guys read the reason why they they put the hearts on and why they created the whole story was because players weren't picking up on the fact that they needed to carry it with them? <laughs> oh, really? And that, so they, that, that's like a classic Valve move. Man, I had a connection with that cube. Absolutely. And it was just because it had a heart. I've got a list. Yeah, well, what's your list? First, had to be NetHack. There's just no question about it. <sighs> I, I lose myself to NetHack still at at regular intervals. You know, I was talking about the whole long-term game, long-term game relationship, and to me that is sort of the ultimate example of a game that hasn't aged a second since I first played it. As long as I can get the friggin' game to render properly on my whatever computer I have at the time, it, it the whole interface disappears and I'm playing again. See, now here's where you, you were ruling out the possibility of pinball as a game. And here's where I'm, I'm kind of questioning whether a bunch of ASCII counts as video game. At some point, you'd start to say, well, Zork too, right? Uh, let's, let's go to Jim as a neutral third party. Would you have accepted Colossal Caves or Zork? Well... The question was five games you love, right? Where the none of us were. I don't want to influence your answers, but so far we haven't uh, come up with non-video games just because of the context of the of the podcast. So I think that in the in the context of of you know breaking through barriers, I would have you know allowed any game. I I do have a question though, which, which is: is there a significant difference between the the major roguelikes in, in terms of in enjoyability and replayability? Well, they're different. It's it's sort of like saying there are a bunch of great first-person shooters that I could have all picked, but I chose this one. I chose this one because it was the most fundamental. There's no question. I mean, I I had Rogue back in the day on a 16, 16 megahertz clone. You know, that didn't that wasn't nearly as sticky, of course, as, as NetHack, because it just took it to an entirely different level. Angband was a game I loved. I, uh, yeah, that was the one I played. But t- to me, the, the purest form we know will always be NetHack, um, because it is streamlined. You know, there are other games that have lots more characters, and I don't know. I just had to make a choice, and I sort of went with the one that I would want anybody to play first if they were going to look at this sort of game. Okay. Next game is XCOM. XCOM is is that a I'm getting visions of special forces somehow. No, it's is not that, at all. This is XCOM UFO Defense. 
The game okay. starts by you creating a base someplace on the planet. It was a, it was one of those games that I played a lot, a lot, a lot, and I have never ever been good at. Um, <laughs> there's an element of base building and economics, and the whole premise is like UFOs start appearing, and you 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 spot them with your radar, you shoot them down, kill the aliens on the ground uh, in a turn-based tactical shooter with squads, and then salvage the materials. Research them, reverse engineer them, and start building your own alien technology. That sounds pretty fun. It's pretty. Is fun. It, so is it like when the UFOs are attacking you? Is it is it at all tower defensey or? No, the first phase of the game is building a base, digging in a tunnel, and and building structures. The second phase is like blips on a radar chasing each other, which are the planes fighting. And then the third phase is you land your ship. And then you, you basically walk your squad out, and everybody moves, and then you wait, and the aliens move. And then everybody moves, and you wait, and the aliens move. And so it's turn-based. You know, you have to pick what weapons you carry, and the more stuff you carry, the slower you are. And, like, reloading takes time, and picking something up takes time. Mm-hmm. And your characters all have stats. They can get panicked, and you can name them. And there's this Im- immense richness. And the sequel's... The second one was underwater, basically the same game, and then it sort of went downhill from there because they tried to keep up with game engine technology and some essence of the game was lost. And, you know, nowadays people don't have necessarily as much patience for a game like this, but Hunters on the on the iPad is probably a good example of something that's similar kind of turn-based squad gameplay. I love games in which you, you research alien technology. It reminds me of... Uh, did you ever play Masters of Orion 2? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You know what the one that I played that was so awful was uh, that other one? No, I, I wasn't into that big time. You were big time not into it. No, no, I, I just never never crossed my path. I probably would have would have jumped in if I had if I had fallen for it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like... Masters of Orion feels like uh, it's sort of like uh, a, the video game precursor to Twilight Imperium. <laughs> <laughs> All these games are massive time sucks, and they're incredibly complex and beautiful. But the thing for me is sometimes not fun, but I just can't I can't stay away. I'm editing. I'm taking out Fallout One from my list because it's it's too obvious, and I'm I'm switching it out with uh, Masters of Orion too. Okay, just like that. I, I say like our list because because they're, they're so they're so different and there's such great coverage, uh, except for a total lack of like sports games and and bro shooters. Fable, guilty pleasure. Is ah, my game. excellent. I fall in love with every concept that Peter Molyneux comes up with, and then I never really enjoy the games. But Fable, I liked a lot. And the reason why I sort of had to put it on was my sister bought an Xbox and then it left it at the house, uh, my parents' house. And like every time I would come home for a holiday and I happened to start playing that game, my family would lose me for the rest of the holiday. I'd just, I'd just play the game. I mean, there's just something about the the pacing and the flow. The, the morality system, of course, was a disappointment, but it had... Grand Theft Auto type stats when that was still a fresh concept, you know, number of chickens kicked for this kicked chicken, that that kind of thing. Yeah, a <laughs> hundred pigeons. You have to find them across the game. Yeah, all that, all that crap. The idea at the time of being a character with a sword, magic, and a and a bow 
was kind of a new concept. Like, you didn't have to pick a class. Maybe it wasn't novel, but, but I, I really enjoyed it. And the general level of polish, even though, again, every time they tried for something epically awesome, the game sort of fell short. It was There was a robust enough game underneath it that I really enjoyed it. That, has there been a game that, that has done morality well? No. Tom, I remember your complaint a long time ago. We had this conversation of the morality being ambiguous, especially in Fable. The guy's husband is cheating on him. And you're talking about trying to figure out what actually the right thing would be to do. Because it's not at all obvious. It, it, it definitely, they they were making some some clear some heavy uh, choices. Decisions. But in one in one case, you're ratting somebody out, and in the other case, the person you're ratting out is betraying his or her. I don't remember which which it was, but it, it, the, the, that person's spouse. And I looked at that, and I'm without knowing the people. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure that out, and of course, maybe this says more about me than it should. The the first game with a morality system that made me feel bad and for for something I did in the game, and and I don't think it was at all the the mechanics of the morality system was when I when I played Mass Effect and I, I was convinced that my character was like a cold cold killer who was. Sort of going through the game and and sort of like tossed aside uh, non-player characters. You picked the Economist build. <laughs> yeah, well, but then there's a certain part where there's a I can't remember what it is, but there there's like a non-player character who is like part of this like large living plant thing or has been like infected by the the, the plant and there's a, whatever the frame story to it. At at the end of the point, it's like you've like rescued them from the plant and you're given the option to either let them go or kill them because they did bad things while a part of the plant. And it's like clearly the right thing to let them go. And I, I gunned them down in cold blood. And, and after that, I actually switched the way I was playing the character because I was, I was so appalled. <laughs> <laughs> you're dissatisfied with your choice. Yeah. I, I was playing uh, the Star Wars MMO late last year, and I started off playing a goody two-shoes Jedi guy, and then I decided to, to play a, a Sith evil guy, and I was in a group with four other ostensibly dark side people, and there's a, a point at which basically you have questioned this uh, Republic general to, to get some information and you get a choice of whether to kill him or not. And everybody in the group gets to vote. And apparently if anybody votes to kill him, he gets killed. And I did. And I was the only one. And everybody else there was very surprised. <laughs> anybody would I just thought I was role playing. Hey, I'm supposed to be evil. Throughout all of the text, everything I would say, all of my characters' lines were, were really you know, arrogant and and uh, either obsequious to people who are above me or uh, domineering over over people below me. And of course, they they were that was a, a a good way to to role play somebody in in that society. Uh, but I was I was quite surprised that the, uh, it seemed to be a new thing. Well, one of the things that I thought was really 
promising about uh, with the Penny Arcade guys, uh, Mike, when he was talking about playing the MMO, the Star Wars MMO, he talked about how pleased he was that he could basically create a very complicated and nuanced backstory for his character. And then he felt like whenever he had a dialogue choice, there was an answer that was satisfying to him. Yeah. I did think they did a pretty good job of that. I, obviously, I don't think you could have gone too far against your your character's type, but that they it was an interesting set of worlds you could you can go through. I, I talk about it as if it's in past tense, but I suppose by modern <laughs> standards, it is effectively is. Yeah, that's so. We derailed you a lot. You, I think you have a, a game left, right? I got two more. Two more. Wow. So, natural selection is my fourth. Excellent. Uh, Tom, you know where I'm coming from. Yes, I was just looking at when we were talking about the whole build order thing and, and such. I was actually looking up natural selection, too. Looking forward to it and then realizing it's multiplayer PvP only, and I'll, I'll probably forever be too intimidated to actually get into the stupid thing. Oh, I think, I think Paul's going to drag us in. Are you familiar with the game, Jim? I am not. I've, you know... I'm uh, frantically Wikipedia and things. So, so Natural anyway. Selection started out as a Half-Life 2 mod, old-school Half-Life 2 mod. And it was aliens versus humans, PvP, inside of you know starships or star bases or whatever. But the huge thing, and this was that the Marine side, one player goes and sits. Now, they had this in tribes, but it wasn't as nuanced. One Marine has to, has to go and sit in a command chair. And then their game view switches to a top-down view. So it's like playing an RTS where all the little NPCs you're sending around are other players, real people in the game. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Which is the best and the worst part of the game. <laughs> because it's they have great to do if you have somebody you? good who wants to do that. Yes. Yeah, if, if, you, if you thought pathing was bad with AI... Imagine when you get a bunch of uh, cats playing the game and they're running around and not listening and getting ganked. And uh, so the aliens, the way that they worked was it was a hive kind of intelligence. And so with Marines, the commander could basically set a waypoint for any individual player and they would have something on their map, you know, in their UI, like go this way. Anything one alien saw, all the aliens could see. Um, how, did, how did that work? They would basically show up as little circles on your map at the horizon point, and you could basically morph between characters, and only after you had killed a certain number of marines or whatever could you, like, get the big bad ones. But the littlest aliens could run on the walls, run on the ceilings, that whole thing. The littlest aliens could even evolve a, an ability to camouflage themselves and just fade out. So if they were not moving and were sitting on the ceiling, they, they would be invisible to the marine walking under them, and of course that was just an awesome thing to leap down on somebody's head. Yeah, it would still, all they had was a bite attack, and it would still take five or six bites to kill somebody. So it was always a fair fight, but like very, very frustrating. And the, the way, the, the overarching premise of the game was there were three spots in every map that the aliens could capture. And if they captured all three, the game was pretty over. And the Marines were trying to destroy the alien bases as they were created. But oh, just a just a lovely game. Now, the team that did the mod broke off and did their own company, and they were going to make this game, and it was going to be the greatest thing ever. And 
to be fair, it looks like they really have something now. But they went through one of those Duke Nukem-type processes where they burned through five or six different game engines, and just getting the nuts and bolts working took forever. Yeah, they're claiming this summer. Well, I, I saw it at, uh, at at PAX, and it looked great. I believe Paul's played it, and he says it's real. Is it Natural Selection 2, or is it... Uh, yeah, it's Nat- Natural game? Selection 2. Mm-hmm. But it's just a super, super great concept. I think there's been other games since that came out that have used the same concept. I mean, what you're describing sounds a little bit similar to what Left 4 Dead was trying to get at with having two sides that have fundamentally different balance and game style, though the RTS side of things is uh, really interesting. I think that's a great comparison, the way you have to completely warp your head around to play the game differently based on who you are. Um, yes. It's not just skin deep. The hilarious thing when you're playing a pickup game, nobody wants to get in the chair. Or one <laughs> guy does and nobody wants him to get in the chair. It's a game that's best played in league play, which is to, to Tom and my distress. <laughs> The last one I put down is the, the Warhammer 40K RTS. Just because, you know, Paul and I play this a lot. Tom, you and I played it a little bit. It was an RTS that, through the main storyline of the game, you had at most four characters that you controlled. You know, when we used to play the lovely big huge game, Rise of Nations, what we would do is set the squad cap down to, like, 20 Something really, really, really low. And, and the, the problem was it broke the AI because the AI didn't know how to play when the game had changed that much. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, getting away from the game where, again, StarCraft on TV, where you have hundreds of characters moving in unison as part of a flowing attack, like that's never been it for me. But it was a game that had the squad, and there's a squad leader, and there are four other guys, and you know they can die, but then as long as you retreat, you can regenerate the squad back. So really, really fun game. It was the only the only RTS I really felt like I could put on the list, even though I love the genre of games that I connected with, because the constraints were different enough that that it was tolerable for me. Yeah, it's interesting that that the Warhammer 40k game would would have those constraints because my biggest impression of my friends playing Warhammer in in junior high was the level of complexity that you had to deal with in terms of, I guess, just research and preparation to, to like, play a single game. Sure. No, and the game, the game was very complex, and it had all kinds of RTS RPG elements where you would get item drops, and it would be a different color quality, and all the characters had different builds, so you could have, you know, two or three radically different configurations of each character, and you would pick which squad you sent on which trip, but... There are a lot of good hours playing with, with Paul or with somebody else and having each of us only control two squads mm-hmm. because there is a pacing and sort of deliberateness that you can that you can use to, to tackle it. I really enjoyed it. Do you remember – I'm looking online and there's like 20 Warhammer 40K games. Do you, do you remember the, the, the full title? Warhammer 40K Dawn of War. Okay. And you know the sequel is is even better. Just great games and great story and and very very fun. So all of yours are RTSs or RPGs? Uh, absolutely, yes. And I had to constrain myself from from less first person things. So I think 
Define ourselves. Sports, we definitely spread the genre. We, we could have easily done 10. We could have easily done 20. I mean, I was trying to think back to, like, what were the first games that I owned, you know, playing the old 8-bit Nintendo. What were the experiences? I mean, so many great games. I, but, you know, you gotta got to do something. I don't know what the parental advisory level of this is, but I loved NBA Jam. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to pick Double Dribble? (laughs) No, and I think NBA Jam, the sports games that that I like are are NBA Jams, and it's it's cheating, but Tony Hawk 2. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is a sports game and was incredibly fun. It wasn't a team game. That's the... uh, (laughs) The the way it's like a sports game in the way that that like track and field or cross country is a sport. I, I want to pick uh, Tech Mobile. You know, I, I love that game. I don't know, but we should play Robo Rally. <laughs> yes, we should. So, game you wish you loved but you don't. I wish I loved Little Big Planet too. The the little big planet worlds are are beautifully constructed, cute and a, a very different style of gameplay. You collect stickers and and these little glowing balls, and somehow that's fun. But <laughs> the multiplayer, it is just too easy to sabotage the other player. And so for a game that should be a really fun cooperative game, I end up getting ex- extremely frustrated at Krista and vice versa whenever we play it because one of us is trying to get ahead of the other and then the other one dies if they fall off the screen or someone tries to make a jump and the other one grabs them and they fall. There's just a few too many mechanics that that just like totally sabotage how fun it is to play with another person who is not totally at your skill level and and has no will to sabotage you. (laughs) This is the the recent uh, Mario game, right, which was another... Relationship killer on the Wii, not the one with the the star helper and the planets, but the one that followed it up. It was a side scroller, classic looking Mario game, but mm-hmm. you could really easily, yeah, sabotage your friends to save yourself. And it was no journey. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> Tom, what do you got? So games I wish I loved. Well, one which is a, an arcade game that just was frustratingly close but didn't make it for me, was Clax, which looked like a, a, a clone of Tetris, but done in a, a fake 3D style that Atari was doing a lot of, and had lots of interesting ways to let you get extra points faster by doing setting yourself up for patterns and such, but, but which ultimately ended up sort of yanking that away from me by ending up just seeming to, it just goes faster until you can't keep up. Uh, it, it really isn't about you seeing patterns and trying to to uh, set up for lots of things to fall in cascade and, and such. When you can do that, it was very rewarding, but it ended up feeling more random rather than uh, uh, part of my, my gameplay. Now, I, I suppose a, a very good Clax player might just proved to me that I was simply a monkey with a joystick. But the the feeling I had with, with, with Clax was uh, of disappointment because of, of perfection not attained. Outside arcade, I will be heretical and say just about every Zelda game. 
I end up wishing I loved it. Oh, yeah. the shock. There we go. And, Everyone and, after the first one, is that? <laughs> they, they just... You tell, me, you tell me you didn't even like the golden, the golden cartridge? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think so. And, uh, but they definitely were trying and couldn't take me all the way, with which many of the other games I did feel like fully satisfied with them. Well, I mean, that's, it's not like a contrarian position because none of us have, have like come out and said that Zelda was the best game ever, but it's just like a surprising objection. Even so, like if, some, I, as I put it down there, I realized that even if I couldn't put it down as something, well, that, that in my top five, because we were really ranking when we, we picked games we loved, Zelda clearly inspires a great deal of affection at the very least and it does with me too i i tend to get most zelda games and look forward to them and so forth but it takes a game for uh for me to truly love a game for me to force myself through the various walls and most of the zelda games haven't done that for me for me it's dwarf fortress I just cannot get into that game. Um, Uh, Raising hand. Ignorance. Okay, so Dwarf Fortress is a curses-based game that... Okay. It is sort of like these guys that made this game did it with the intention of each individual actor in the game has its own life, its own... Kind of an, an Elder Scrolls type implementation of a game where this guy needs to go get food and then he needs to work and then he needs to, you know, watch a movie or whatever. You carve a fortress into a mountain of stone, and you set up booby traps, and you defend the fortress, and you trade with other people. And it's just incredible. Like they they run geological simulations to create the world, where plates move, and you know springs form, and volcanoes flow, like the whole thing. I hear that you have to be careful about cats. Because if you uh, if you leave too many cats around, they'll either eat all your food or or like kill your dwarves or something. Yeah, well, there's just all this complexity, and it's just machines running with the machines. But I just can't get into the interface. It's like they're trying to. I mean, doing it in curses is unreal. What is what is curses? Uh, it's the uh, using ASCII characters or that in one set to draw. Um, so something you could run within a terminal. Yeah. Okay. Which is the same as NetHack. And I, I've gone singing the praise of NetHack, and yet every time I try to play Dwarf Fortress, my eyes glaze over and I run away screaming. Um, <laughs> and it seems like that's a good choice for Wishy Love, too, because it seems like the what might fall in that category also is like a game like Eve, where it's it's a game that doesn't sound that fun, but somehow people have, have like spent tons of time at it and find... like aspects of it in aspects of it that most people wouldn't find fun incredibly rewarding yeah and and that's a whole other show but uh the because i've wrestled with that bear um but you're exactly right like i mean this this type of extremely complicated game is right in my wheelhouse conceivably and yet i just just can't get into it so that's my game so let's uh, we do have a second sponsor. Let's do the second one. Our second sponsor is Chestnut Handy Stables. I don't know if you guys have, have you been to the Chestnut Handy Stables. They're located right outside the Imperial City. I have not. No. 
So, so they, the horse flesh, the whole thing, but they've recently started getting into horse armor. And armor for horses? Armor for horses. And I, I don't really think I need to make a case for why horse armor is a good idea. But uh, I'm sure you know what you're going to say is uh, I don't own a horse. I talked to them about this when they said they wanted to sponsor the show. And they, they said, no, no, I got this under control. We don't just do horses anymore. Basically, anything from ferrets to war elephants, they, they custom size a sort of bespoke armor. And for people that, that aren't actually looking for battle gear, they also have some more urban-friendly suits. They, they do some nice stuff with wool, natural fibers. Avant-garde pieces. Yeah, some, some knit products. They've really got a fine selection of custom-fitted outfittery for animals. I know you guys are both big, big dog lovers. They, they did want to talk to you about kind of working something out. And uh, you don't knock how badass Greyhound would look in, in armor. Chestnut Handy Stables can hook me up with ATAT armor for my, my Greyhound. See, that, uh, see, see, now you're thinking. That's exactly the kind of thing that, that they do. Yeah, um, okay. it's, all, it's all custom work. They, they, they've been in the business for a long time, and they stand behind their products. So uh, you should check it out, and we want to thank them again for, for sponsoring this. Uh, thank you. The next question that we have on the list is... Your most memorable gaming experience. What? <laughs> most memorable gaming experience? I don't think I was ready for this one. So I'm this is, this is what was your best or most memorable? It was uh, on the list, Tom. I, I don't want to... Your lack of preparation does not, not give you a, an out on this. But, but, Brian, when you read Oops, through them the first time, there. you missed it. It's entirely, it's entirely possible. <laughs> but, but I bet Tom has one that he can, that he can dig out. Jim, you get to go first, though, so, so Tom can order last if he must. Well, so the most memorable is, is actually, like, in opposition to best for me in, in some ways. I chose because, my words carefully, yeah. <laughs> um, when I was thinking of the, my best experiences, I, I think of the marathon sessions in which I played Assassin's Creed for 23 hours over the course of, like, 30 hours and Metal Gear Solid 2 for 19 hours out of... I think 24 hours, and those were very positive. But the most 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 memorable because of how heart crushing it was was playing a game Chicken Wing, which is an original game, which is these cute flash games. I sat down one Sunday before breakfast, started playing, and discovered that I was so good at it that I continued to play over the course of eight hours. And people went to brunch, and then they came back and brought me food, and I kept playing and and I think I, I, I topped like eight hours and 15 minutes, and then I basically was so far ahead of what I knew the high score was that I, I sort of let myself lose so that I could stop playing. And I was, you know, orders of magnitude above the, the next high score, only to find out the next day that high scores reset every day. <laughs> That's a terrible story. I'm sorry that happened to you. Oh, um, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. That's that's most memorable. Yes, that is a that is an excellent choice. It taught me a lot about life and video games. The the impermanence and so on. Yes, the whole footprints in the sand thing. Tom, you want to stall or you? you I've got to stall because I, I'm I'm realizing that I have for for my for my uh, memories of of playing games loads of just general enjoyment and occasional pain experiences. But things 
nothing is 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 standing out uh, that, that just screams anecdote. Well, great. Then I'll steal one that that you might have used, which was the, oh. four, the forty-five minute Baron run. Uh, okay, <laughs> That's, you could go for that because that I, Im- immediately brought me to one one of my dungeon runs with a hunter pet that probably would come to mind. The World of Warcraft, which I hear is a is an MMO. Jim, you never played, right? My brother was very into it. He clocked the the multiple months playtime over the the amount he played. So he would periodically just pay for for me to play. Like not actually like bribe me, but like pay for my account. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I would I I played a few times, and because my buddy works for Blizzard, you know there was that tie-in, and I I enjoyed it for a while, and then didn't anymore. The Baron Run refers to one of the original dungeons in the game. So it's one of the old school dungeon designs, which I think generally are there aren't gimmicks or tricks. It's just kind of fundamental mechanics of how to play the game. They had a timer in the game where you got special prize if you could beat this one particular entire you know dungeon in 45 minutes or less. It's it's no longer really an achievable goal since the game has moved on. There's this uh, there's this game in the the MMO where you sort of level your character up to the level cap, right? And so you hit level 60 or whatever the limit is, and then you're like, aha, I've made it. And then you sort of realize there's like another equivalent of like 20 or more levels that you can, you know, power up your character based on the gear they have. Yeah. And the way you get better gear is you go to better, you know, tougher dungeons to get more gear and like there's sort of tiers of things. Well, that, so, that's not, you know, it's not like you go to tougher dungeons and you get more gear. It's you join a guild with 40 people and then have some sort of like economic agreement where it's like stored in a spreadsheet how much time you spent yes, uh, and yes, then you trade that for yeah for you're, you're absolutely right so like <laughs> the, the, you can you can get like an order of magnitude pa- more powerful but it requires like working with 40 people and having this whole machine backing you up well we were playing with a group of five or six people and they have gear that is you know blue which means it's a good piece of gear and purple which means it's an awesome piece of gear and i think most of us had one or two purple items so we didn't have by any stretch of the imagination, the best gear, and we didn't have any of the gear that came from these kinds of large-scale guild operations. So we were... It was a skill thing for us. And we trained and trained and trained and trained and fought and spat at each other and threw things, and eventually we nailed it. And, And for me, that was just... It was before the game moved to a point where it got easier. It was before all the achievements of the original game were sort of wiped out by the first expansion, which was a big deal for a lot of people. Because, you know, the the game had sort of stabilized for... How long was the game out before the first expansion came out, Tom? I think two years. Yeah, so people had sort of established this pecking order, uh, uh, you know, for like two years, and then suddenly the, the slates were all wiped clean. And, you know, you entered the new phase of the game, and all the gear was better than what these people had, had fought so hard for. It was cool. And it represented the best of what I think MMOs are supposed to be about, which is five people or some number of people working together in unison to do something that's really, really hard. <laughs> yes. Did you did you do that on the first try, or did it take? Oh more? no. Oh god, no. We, we we trained and trained and trained, and we we actually just all this finagling about which path are we going to take and timing these things, and you know doing it halfway and then abandoning and. 
just all kinds of stuff. It was this. It took us what? I mean, at least a month or two of, of running against it. Many weeks, and one of the things, of course, is we actually <laughs> exploited Brian's perfectionism to do a lot more research. So many of us were there and coasting, and, and Brian would say, you're, you're supposed to be going this way, and okay, around this corner, and so forth. Well, but we I, did I was, ultimately get better. I was so when you're, when you're saying spitting and, and throwing things, that was uh, primarily Brian spitting and throwing things at, at you guys. So yeah, I think that's probably true. <laughs> Are you really going to character me something like that? Because if you do, that's fine, but then i got to do some self-analysis. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that uh, I would be admitting a fair amount about the rest of us as well, though. But uh, yeah, no, I, I I tanked that run. Um, my wife healed it, um, so uh, it was it was pretty awesome. I mean, would you say anything else about that, Tom? That experience? It 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 was very cool to do it, and and that's part of when a game can enable you to feel that you've actually improved at your skill at something. It's not just you kept rolling the dice until they they came up with the the numbers that it needed is actually a, a a nice feeling. Yeah, it was and it definitely did that. It was pure, it was an achievement and it was don't care who you are, it's tough. And we did it with some serious disadvantages. Yeah, we were badass. It was awesome. What a positive memorable gaming experience. Yeah. That's my pick. I, I would be at what what's the was the level seventy raid dungeon? Karazhan? Karazhan. I can't, I can't be that memorable if you can't remember the name. I know it's just my memory. <laughs> I, I I don't think I could name a specific run, but that was probably my favorite in terms of it was somewhat long and and exhausting to go through the entire thing, but it was also uh, lots of variety. And, and interesting humor and, and a combination of gameplay challenges. Again, they were actual challenges, not just puzzles. You had to be be careful of how people were doing things. It was also, at least at our level, not a foregone conclusion that you would make it through things. I liked that. Cool. The next one was uh, Pet Peeve. Yeah, I, I I don't know how easy this is to fix or avoid, but my I think you probably only need one person or a few people early on to avoid this. But games that are fun to play, but which are like really it's extremely obvious that it, it was a bunch of levels created by different teams of people, and the the narrative tying them together was a uh, was an afterthought. Particularly as someone who really enjoys playing single-player campaign. It's a thing that really irked me about Halo Reach in, in Gears of War. Games that I enjoy playing, but like if I stopped playing for 24 hours, I would entirely forget what the storyline was because it was totally meaningless and forgettable. I think that that could, that could be avoided with some, some planning done at the beginning of the process. <laughs> or it might be avoided by not feeling you have to have a storyline on every game. They're they're going through the motions of having a story, but nobody yeah, cares. Yeah, that's that's the, the the going through the motions part. I hear you in in the Tom. You, you talk a lot about your your enjoyment of games that are sort of pure gameplay games that don't try to be something of another another media. Team Fortress. Uh, yeah, 
or or Counter Strike or, or something like actually, that. Actually, Team Fortress is a pretty lousy example because the characters yeah. that they create are extremely rich. Well, they're <laughs> cool characters, but there is no there is no story. It, it, a game is a game. If, if it's setting me up to uh, to make me think that there is one and and then letting me down, I think that that really annoys me. Yes. Good pick. My first one is essentially nagging social games. You you described this as supposed to be something fixable, and that actually may not be true while while Zynga exists on this planet. But that class of game is very high up there for me as a pet peeve with games today. I, I mean, if you, if, you, if you were forced to constrain that, I guess I would say the way that those elements are seeping into every game now, not even right. the, the free play. I downloaded... No Zombies Allowed the other day, mm-hmm. because people were talking about it on Twitter, the Penny Arcade guys were talking about how awesome it was. And I launched it, and I'm like, oh, this looks pretty good. Wait a minute, it's free. Okay, I'm worried about that right there. And then I realized it's one of those games that runs the clock, where it takes 10 seconds to build the first structure, and then an hour to build the next structure, uh. and then six hours to build. And it's just such a blatant money-grubbing mechanic. Because and if only you can get some of your friends to come in and help yeah, you go. Because, because there's absolutely nothing about having a game take eight hours and then 14 hours that I think really enhances the gameplay. You didn't say that about Eve. That's a little different. You're not, it's not like you're, you have to... Well, I, I guess, tell me, is it you <laughs> You have like a few minutes of, of gameplay and then you just have to wait that much time until the next time you play? Well, and one of the things about, about EVE is the skills that you're learning either only improve your character incrementally or they take a long time to master. Like once you sort of break through to a new floor, it takes a while to master the abilities that you've, that you've gained. But you shouldn't just power through. I'm, I'm just going to argue a position here. I'm not sure it's really defensible. But this concept of, okay, if I'm really playing this game seriously, like I've got to set an alarm to wait a minute, if I do it now, it'll be at 9 o'clock. Okay, that's all right. I can get in at 9 o'clock and play. And then if I don't do the thing by 10 o'clock the next morning, it's wasted and I've lost a day. Like, it, all it does is create anxiety. And there's no real benefit. Yeah, those games are a plague upon the earth. I, I actually deleted Draw Something today and Words with Friends. <gasps> Even though I love playing Draw Something with you, Tom. Not that I could tell. I just don't want to feed the beast anymore. <laughs> I play Bridge with Friends. I only play with my dad, and it's a way for us to keep in contact uh, every few days. I could definitely reverse my position on Draw Something, because I friggin' love that, the concept of the game. It's not competitive. It, I think my problem with Draw Something was that I got super excited, and when I first started, there were only a few people, like maybe... 20 people that I wanted to play with that had the game, and so like felt like a, a new cool thing. But then I started games with all 20 of those people, and then it like almost immediately got stressful because uh, uh, yes, I, couldn't, would... I, I couldn't play like fast enough to uh, be done with a session. <laughs> Beauty of the game, right, is going, okay, this one's for my sister, so if I use this kind of shortcut to reference this thing, she's going to understand it. And nobody else would. Leveraging your relationship and your experience with a person to do that kind of shorthand is a is a beautiful thing. 
but yes, I'm glad that we got social gaming in there because it is, uh, as Jim said, a scourge on the earth. And that doesn't even count as yours, Brian. Do you have? Like, oh no, I got another one. Yeah, I'm going to call it the MMOification of all games. I'll give you a short answer, and then I'm going to give you a longer answer. My pet peeve, short answer, are friggin' multiplayer party games that require 10 or 20 hours of play to unlock the party modes that you actually want to play with people. So you buy the game, you unwrap the shrink wrap, and you're like, oh, I've got to progress in the single player mode to be able to play the multiplayer mode. Like, who does that? Who thinks that could possibly be a good idea? <laughs> what, what's the example? Smash Brothers or Raving Rabbits. Oh, okay. So, so games where it's like, out of the box, you have like two characters... Or, you know, only a couple of games that you could play, and uh, you have to, like, work for it to to be fun for a uh, yeah, now, now, for the Sma- whole now, now, Smash Brothers, to be fair, it's because the people I'm playing with are so rabid about all games that I felt like it would be a dishonor for me to show up and not have that advanced. But Raving Rabbids is one where we, I think we really went and bought it, and we're like, we're going to play multiplayer, and it's like, oh, all these modes are turned off. We can't do it. And mm-hmm. it was just shocking to me. And I sort of feel that way about every game I play now. I guess what I would call it is like the artificial prolonging of these games and the use of like unlocking or kind of carrot stick mechanisms or little endorphin spikes to toy with you when that's not necessary. There, there are some places where it's been done to great effect, like the, the deathmatch mode in the Warhammer 40k games, the one I the one I picked for one of my top five, where you sort of the better you do, the more items you unlock, it's executed well. One example is Kingdoms of Amalur, all the side quests they have. I started playing the game and like doing every single little side quest, and then I realized I wasn't having fun, and I never did another side quest again. And I love the game. Really. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm not I actually was enjoying the, most. I'm not of talking them. about the storyline quests that give you reward; those are brilliant. I'm talking about the kill ten rats, give this letter to this guy, all those quests. Yeah, it, it was an interesting thing that I played it mostly doing those, and discovered that it was poorly balanced in the sense that as you did that, you would move to a new level and discover you were already it. high yeah. enough level that you weren't that interested in the rewards of the mainline quests you were getting. Yeah. So that it was only by random chance that you would be happy about a reward for a quest as opposed to a, an, an obvious part of your progression. I actually think they they messed up a bit in that way. I didn't mind, however, the just huge number of available quests I just, you know, starting out the game with a sort of a completionist mindset, it just, you know, wasn't a good idea for me to do all those quests. And the House of Ballads, like those side quests were so good, Mm -hmm. and everything about them was wonderful. You juxtapose that with carry this pail of water to this guy, and it's like they're two different games. There was a Penny Arcade comic about this where, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to saving the world, but first I've got to find, you know, 10 trilobites or whatever. I had the same reaction when I was playing the original Assassin's Creed. And I climbed a tower, and it's like, you've climbed one of the ten towers you need to you know, unlock the tower climber thingy, Medic. Get this sense of weariness. <laughs> that, that was, as I, I said earlier, for me, like I played Assassin's Creed effectively all the way through with a little bit of sleep and a little bit of working from home on a different coast than all my other coworkers in, in between. 
And I eventually, since then, have gotten a weariness where if I notice that a game has lots of side quests, I will explicitly start rationing which ones I care about. But I guess for me, for Assassin's Creed, it it wasn't quite there yet, and it was also just like so fun to move about the world that I didn't mind that I was doing the same thing over and over again in three different cities with ten different regions. But I, I think this is the, the nut of it, though, which is what I'm reacting negatively to fundamentally is the fact that every game thinks that I want to be its best friend. Like, like if, I, if, I, if I loved Assassin's Creed, I'd be very glad that all that richness was there. Mm-hmm. Where, where it's like every game is, well, clearly I'm worth you spending the time to find every nook and cranny of my world. I'm going to say, I'm going to make this up, even though it's not true. The older games, like some of the old console games and stuff like that, would only unlock those modes after you'd beaten the game for the first time. Okay, I want to push back a little on this. Imagine yourself a game designer who is not so into the, the world you're designing that you you hope and believe the people who play it will will fall in love. In other words, isn't that the definition of, of somebody cynically just skating along? What I'm saying is I wish there was a provision for sort of saying, do you want to do everything? Almost like a difficulty level. When you said, I want every game to be my best friend, or every game wants to be my best friend, they do. <laughs> they, yeah, well... I, well, I guess it, it depends on it depends on how needy of a friend they are. Maybe the the distinction there, because games wanting you to play them is one thing, but games wanting you to complete numerical collection missions that are not in and of themselves rewarding, but want you to do it because they're asking you them them to. Maybe that's the the distinction. I agree with that. Although I, the thing is that I, it isn't just. Be best friend. It depends on the genre of the game. If it's a RPG-ish thing, it, they definitely want you to just completely buy into into the world. If it's a badass shooter, they want you to revel in the destruction you can cause or how well you can get that headshot, surprise somebody. They're going to, different game genres are going to be going after different things, but if they aren't trying to make you revel in them, and, and there are plenty of games, I guess, that, that are, are just dog paddling through, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure why we'd care about it. I just, I don't want my games to hold out on me. I don't want my games to make me feel like an ass if I don't, you know, go for everything. I think, Tom, you would be a lot happier if the games that you played had an express mode or a streamlined mode, where you could basically say, yes, I played that game, I've experienced the game, but I played through it in 15 to 20 hours, not 40 hours. I suppose it's interesting, you're you're alluding to the fact that in many, many cases, I don't finish games, I just give up. I don't know what that's a symptom of, because for, for World of Warcraft, of course, I stuck it out, although not into the raid dungeons. So you could say I missed, in many, in many, for many of the expansions, missed that whole part of the the hardcore game. But still, the game and the world kept me coming back, creating new characters and leveling them up stupidly, 
just because at this at, at some point it had become an old shoe. But you're but you're talking about a game you Very love, and I I think again that is a game that you love should reward that kind of persistence. But it's just that feeling that like, geez, if a game doesn't give me forty hours of gameplay, it's just not worth my money. Red Dead Redemption, right? I got sidetracked. Yes. All these games, you sort of if you just said you're like do this and play the game, and and this is how you get through. At some point, you're kind of like, yes, that's what I want. I want to I want to get through this. No, I think that happened with Borderlands with me. Well, the Borderlands, yeah, that was a rough game. Borderlands single player, man. We could talk about Borderlands <laughs> all day. I, I, I love that game, and then I, I, again, the amplification, like I sort of realized what the end game was. An interesting phenomenon to me in terms of the spending lots of time to explore every nook and cranny of the world is the, the phenomenon in games where you could totally miss, I guess, the special aspect of the game like that. The things I'm thinking of are like the skulls in uh, in Halo or the stars in Braid. And we can talk about those another time. But. Well, it's, it's a big issue for game reviewers, right? Because like the game that they play, is the, I've got a deadline, I've got to rush through this thing for the most part. <laughs> and it is a totally different experience than, than most people kind of have. But let's talk about big dreams. Do you have big dreams, Jim? I alluded to Homefront before, but but I think it would be it would be really nice to have a game that both felt relevant to I guess like contemporary political and, and social matters, but was also immersive and fun to play. Uh, <laughs> you can pick one, right? Yeah, it, it's a description of of all the games that Ian Bogost or however you pronounce his last name comes up with. Sound really interesting, but don't don't sound fun to play. Whereas Homefront felt like it. It, it was touching on the, these themes that, that felt relevant to things that were going on in the world, and yet it did so in a way that that was like engaging, and I wanted to keep playing it rather than you know play it once and say, "Ha, oh, that was a good idea." So, which one you ha- is is getting the thunderstorm? That's me. I'm I'm getting the thunderstorm. So you're you're further uh, you're further further east than us. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> You want to have a game that's got all the rich play and you want to unlock everything in it and also triggers those kinds of real deep think storyline elements and that often just doesn't happen at the same time. Well, yeah, well, it's, I tolerate things in video games that I, I wouldn't in books that I read or, or films that, that I watch because, you know, there's something about the, the medium that I want to, to have succeed. Yeah, there, there are movies I would shut off halfway through. And I put up with that stuff three days a week game. And I shouldn't, but I do. Things that that I wouldn't feel embarrassed about describing to to intelligent friends. Mm -hmm. We can go back to Portal again as an example of a game that nails it, but that's not political. That's more just a compelling story. So it's like an interesting, mind-bending game experience, but I think I, I do like the things that connect outside of the, the game world. Finding some way with, like, the Sith slave storyline of the Star Wars MMO to really have to face and explore some difficult concepts in a way that's more than skin deep. You have a storyline and a, and a plot element that, that intersects with a game mechanic. Yeah, it makes you actually think about the realities of human trafficking in uh, 2012. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Tom? I guess when I put this down, I looked back on it and I thought, geez, what am, what, what am I wishing for? It would be a way for 
an MMO to exist that managed to continually change and feel fresh, in which in which the content could be generated faster than the world can could consume it. Ultimately, what would probably happen if such a thing worked out is people would get bored of some aspect of gameplay. If it it wouldn't be Kill 10 Rats, it would be something else. It would be the substitute for Kill 10 Rats. That said, and you've talked about this uh, before, Brian, is the, the, the notion that somebody might be able to work out the dynamics to make user-created content work so that people could be rewarded properly for generating interesting content that everybody else could experience. I don't know if that's ever going to be possible, but uh, I think that would be a, a, a very cool experience in games and, and watch out, watch how communities might shard off in doing that sort of thing. Sure. Now, of course, that's like the holy grail of MMO design, if you could pull that off. I read a short story in Asimov's recent, and it had a fictitious MMO where every day was a different apocalypse. Okay. And your, and your character was scored based on how long they lived and so on and so on. And so one day it might be a worldwide flood, next day it might be a virus, next day it might be zombies. Different challenge every day. And so it's the same game and fundamentally the same mechanics, but there's a freshness that's always there. And that would be really interesting and, of course, incredibly expensive and practically impossible to do. Well, I mean, what we learned with the Star Wars MMO was it's definitely possible to create an amazing story, but you just can't do it in a way that scales. I, you know, I'm not really clear what what failed uh, well, there, there were other th- Star Wars. There were other things they didn't do as well, like the world design, right? Ultimately, there was no place for people to go once they hit the level cap. Right. See, I didn't even bother to get to the level cap, but... Yes. Of course, it's also possible that the fact that I didn't have other, the, the social part of it, other friends playing it and, and uh, pulling me in may well have had a, a lot to do with with my eventually giving up on it. Well, we could spend a day talking about are we in the post-MMO world? Is the, time, is the world just moved on? Because yep. there's, a, there's a definite argument that that's, that's the case. Blizzard will find out this, uh, this winter, won't they? Could be. If they can't do it, then we're post-MMO, but I suspect they can. Well, if it has real money trade, zing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but that's, again, that's another discussion. <laughs> so my big dream is just uh, better AI. It's really hard. <laughs> Every, you know, black and white, I love the concept of the game. It sucked. Uh, I've been playing I've been playing The Sims on on my uh, iPad a little bit. It's like uh, some version of SimCity 3000. Just because I bought it a while ago and I'm messing around with it again. I just keep trying to change them, the little Sim characters. I keep trying to train them to want to live in an eco-friendly city or want to live in a you know this or that. And any game that's ever tried to tackle that, where you have a reinforcing effect with the population or whatever, or with the entities, it's, it's always done in such a simplistic way that it doesn't scale. I know it's an impossible problem, but I would love you, to play that game. You want more than a game that, that handles morality well. You want a game in which you can teach your your minions to be moral. <laughs> yes, or not. The ideal concept would be like a black and white type game or a populist type game or one of these god games. You could Your people could be vegetarian or they could be cannibalistic or they could be 
whatever. You could train them to be whatever you wanted them to be, and then you know they would like or dislike you based on that context. Although whenever people do that sort of thing, and whether it's that or the civilization games or whatever, the game designers behind it always have, in addition to their their desires to create balance and fun in gameplay, also tend to have some little moral to the story they're trying to get. If only you could cooperate together, then the economies would have worked so much better. And we're just we're teaching you the after-school special morality tale. And yet they essentially code those morality tales in through the constants of equations that that will balance things one direction or another. That's a really good point. Yeah, there's sort of whether it's whether it's obvious or not there's a bias in the game. Right. Although yeah. the the 10-year civilization game that, that you pointed out did not go where I expected such a thing to be to to have a game essentially devolve into permanent war and and chaos and dystopia was certainly it was fascinating. Well and, and to, to me like that's the only way that those games ever work out because they're just not there's no other stable point other than that extreme that you could probably hit. I don't know. Everlasting prosperity. Yeah. But it uh, has to be a it has to be a game in which you're you're not put into conflict with with others. <laughs> talking about right and wrong and bias and good and bad. Well, you keep aiming for morality systems in games, and just after you've declared absolutely that such a thing is impossible, so this is well, I don't think it's uh, impossible. It's just a good it's, wish. A, it's a windmill. Yeah, I mean, good example is like stealing stuff, right? Like the, the people talk about, I took something off the shelf by accident and I tried to put it back, and like I was forever marked a criminal. Right. You know the concept that I was reading something about the Oblivion games, like you walk in and. They harp on the realism of these games, and I'm thinking of the implementation of The Witcher, but but I think it also applies to the the Elder Scrolls games. Yeah, they go to sleep at night, and like you walk into their house and you talk to them, they're like, "Oh, you want to buy something from me?" It's like this entirely surreal half implementation <laughs> of the concept. Well, that's uh, uh, well, just to Skyrim, that's not true. They're <laughs> they're asleep at night. You you can break into their house. <laughs> And steal things if you happen to want to do that. Yeah, but if and you, if you wake them at. up, what, are they threatened? How do they react? It depends. Okay. They, so, they, so they may run from you. They, they will. If they run from you, they will run towards the city guard in most cases. If they're a more aggressive person, they might fight you right then. Uh-huh. Um, things like that. If you kill them, you better hide the body. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that's, that's always, that, that is my favorite part, the fact that, the the thing that always annoys me about games is is when you when you get into a fight and you get some sort of bad reputation. But what uh, what's what Skyrim did well is that if if you kill all the witnesses, then you don't have a bad reputation anymore. And you're still a good guy. <laughs> yeah. Now, but 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 Skyrim still didn't do a thing where you could be a villain in one town and a hero in another. My experience with Skyrim is is watching Krista play. So I'm not sure, but I think you. I'm pretty sure that you do have regional reputations with the Yes, different. I mean, well, there are towns that are essentially controlled by the thieves. Well, but that, uh, so, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the concept of uh, Morrowind. It, it, was an, it was an overreach of a game. Very ambitious. Uh, they did good work, but it was just not the time. The fact that, like, you did a crime one place, you're a criminal in the entire world. And I just don't think war gets around that fast. 
I yes, I agree with that. Although, and and certainly the the guards do have very good walkie-talkies within the cities, but I'm not sure. I think actually it is may, city by city. I would say I think all of the Elder Scrolls games overreach, and that's for the best. Well, it's, it, they, each, they, each they, they, stage, they get better every time. Yeah, yeah, they do. In each stage, actually fixes many of the things that they didn't quite get in the past, and still. They they go for a little bit more, a little bit too much. I'd like to make a correction that the the Red Faction I was referring to was Red Faction Guerrilla, which came out in 2009. Okay. Because <laughs> I did play that that one, the original one. Sorry, derailing. No, no, not at all. So we're we're gonna wrap up, but uh, t- tell tell me what you're playing now, Jim. Uh, I'm playing The Darkness 2. Has lots of uh, really. You're playing The yeah. Darkness 2. <laughs> yeah, built, built and rending, heart consuming. Uh, it's like what the Sopranos would be if if uh, you were inhabited by a, a nightmarish dark entity that sometimes make you, makes you see crazy things. It's it's tentacular, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you still have to yeah get rid of all light? Uh, yeah, you shoot out the light. You, like you actually that, like take okay. a lot of damage if you're in the light. And there are enemies that that have very powerful flashlights, or basically they look like shoulder rocket launchers, but they just like shine really bright light at you, which I think was a, a good innovation for the Angelus. Is, is one of those Alan Wake? <laughs> yeah, the that that would be a good mashup. He's got a cameo. Anything else? No, that's pretty much all I'm I'm playing right now. I bought. What was the game I bought? Lone Survivor, and I played that a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I played a little bit, and it, it didn't stick. Although it was interesting, it didn't stick. I played for 15 minutes, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Steam. Oh, any, anything on the mobile? Not recently. I downloaded a bunch of things, probably around PEX. I'm, I'm extremely slowly playing that game with the name I can't remember, where where you're the... The Adventure, and Jim Guthrie does the soundtrack. Talking about Super Brothers or something else? Uh, Sword and Sorcery. Yeah, yeah, it's a great game. Yeah. So cool. that's where I'm at now. Tom? I've gone through Diablo 3 at normal level and probably not going to continue in at, at the next level, Nightmare or Hell or whichever one it is. Uh, it, it's it's nice and I've enjoyed it and so forth, but I think I'm looking more forward to Torchlight 2 than I am to to playing Diablo 3 beating with with just higher difficulty. I yeah I think on some level listening to friends at work who have hit the level cap, they seem to be uniformly realizing that the auction house has changed the nature of the hamster wheel in Diablo 3 in very bad ways. So that instead of hoping for the slot machine to to vend the specific piece of armor that is, is what you're hoping for you need for this character, instead all you really need is gold because the auction house has vended that to somebody and they'll sell it to you. We're replacing spikes with a gradual curve. This is Tobalt's had a fantastic article essay about this called yeah. Workification. Yeah. I suspect those folks, even though they've you know, made it to 60, won't won't go much much further. Instead, I I will probably go back to Skyrim, try to play some more of that. If only they had a Mac version. No question. <laughs> yeah. How about on the mobile? Ah, uh, what have I been playing? 
the Inferno uh, Robotroid sure. uh, shooter that I that uh, I described. Uh, it's sort of a a cross between Geometry Wars and Gauntlet uh, in terms of having enemy generators and mazes you you move through and so forth. That's been surprisingly fun. Cool. How about you? I I'm not playing very much. I think of myself as playing World of Tanks and uh, the lesser extent League of Legends, but I I haven't played very much. But th- those are the games probably if I was pushed against a wall that I would pick up and play right now on the PC. Yep. I have Mass Effect, the original that I'm trying to get through on the console, but every time I get in that little car that lands on the planet, I just just get weary. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that that car does not have great physics. Uh, it's just. It's just not fun. Uh, that that whole gameplay online is again. It's just a filler, yeah, uh, with no real purpose. On the mobile jetpack joyride is perfection as far as a mobile game, and I still I still play that a little bit. And uh, I mentioned I'm playing SimCity. You know, I'm looking for something, some kind of sim strategy game, and I'm just just coming up empty right now. So. That's that's where I'm. I'm not playing very very much at all these days, but you know, just just need to fall in love again. Yeah, you should really try out uh, the darkness too. <laughs> well, I've, I you know, I keep thinking about getting into Skyrim. I keep thinking about just sinking into one of these other games that I know is, you know, pretty interesting. I don't know. We we've been trying to get something going with multiplayer on the Xbox and just haven't been able to get the group together to rally. And make it happen. I wonder if we shouldn't try to get uh, do one of these games like Carcassonne or or one of those multiplayer yeah, territorial strategy games. Well, or the card? What's the card based one? Ascension that everybody's playing on iOS right now. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's we should play that and talk about it. But that's you know, someone find a Master of Orion two port, and uh, and we'll be we'll be good. They they just they're coming out with a new sins of a solar empire. It's out now. Uh, the 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 third that, that's basically the same game, I think. It is. Have you ever played it, uh, Sins? I, I haven't. I've just I've seen it, but uh, that's another. Uh, I tell you what. Someday when you've got six hours, come over. We'll play a game. I'll, I'll give you the tour. It's awesome. It's a lot of fun. That sounds good to me. It's it, the thing I do like about it, like um, like Left for Dead. It's a game you can walk away from. And not be a bad person, but in the case of Sins, it's because the pace of the game is so deliberate; it just doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I want to watch this too, so let me know when when the demonstration's going on. Cool. You keep okay. trying to pull me in and fail. Yeah, well, you you know, it, it, it's uh, you're one of these with these games. You're skittish. Uh, re, no, it's it's basically whenever the 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 game appears to have a rule book the size of the yellow pages, I I rebel. You're right. I do have a superpower when it comes to those things. Uh-huh. It's it's it's. I'm not sure it's a superpower. It's it's definitely an affection for those sorts of games. But whether it's a a that's a positive trait or not is not clear. I just wish I could apply it at will to any context I wanted. That that ability to sort of up all the information. That would be a superpower. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, it's been a couple hours, guys. Uh, thanks for uh, your resilience. Cool. It was fun. Right. Yeah. Talk to you later. All right. All thanks. Right. Good night.